And Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit would there be for one to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Or what can one give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay everyone according to his conduct. Heavenly Father, the great instrument that you chose, your Son chose to teach all of us was the cross. We tend for, to run from it. We are afraid of the cross, even though you have shown us through your Son that the cross is the way to life. So often, Father, we tend to take the wide road, the road of comfort, the road of ease. We ask, Lord, that tonight you might plant deep within the hearts of your faithful gathered here that glorious cross, that they might cling to it, that they might desire it, and that they might shun the world and its lures. We entrust this talk and this mission to you through the intercession of our Holy Mother as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou, among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, I'm out from usually what I would say the frozen tundra of North Dakota, but it's actually been unseasonably warm. We've been in the 70s, which is very strange. We also are... Uh, very proud, very proud of how much oil we have, how much money we have, how much beef, and most importantly, the greatest supply of nuclear warheads in America. Every year, every year, I ask the Lord to kind of reveal to me what he wants me to speak about to people. And this year has been hands down the love of the cross because we've been slowly converted in our day and age from a culture of discipline, a culture of virtue, a culture of sacrifice into a culture of comfort. One of my favorite quotes is from Benedict XVI. He said, the world will offer you comfort, but you were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. But I think we're so afraid of greatness. I think it was John Paul II who said, it's not that we fear our weakness. We fear our greatness. Because to be great, you have to sacrifice. But slowly, 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 we have all been converted over to this culture of ease, this culture of comfort. How did it happen? Every year, as I ask the Lord what to preach on, what to talk about, I, ask the, I also ask somebody from history to befriend me. Sometimes that's saints, 
Sometimes that's just random people. They come and visit me. Not like, you know, not like dead people come and visit me. But they visit me through my prayer, through books, whatever. In this past year, Alexander the Great, of all people, has befriended me in some way. And I'm not holding, for the record, I'm not holding Alexander the Great up as a model Christian. Okay? He killed a lot of people. But... He had a very, very interesting way of conquering a people. Once the battle was over, he didn't force his traditions on people. He didn't kind of subjugate people and make them follow everything that he believed in. All he did was this. He would introduce one thing at a time, very gently, very calmly, and he would say, just try it. And so they'd start out, and they'd simply say, look, okay, I mean, I was taught, Aristotle was, or uh, Alexander the Great was taught by Aristotle, the great philosopher. Imagine that classroom. That would have been terrible. You know, you could never be right with Aristotle. But as he was, as, he, as he'd come forward, he'd say, look, I'm, I'm steeped in the Hellenistic Greek tradition. All I ask you is simply try Greek food. And they're like, we don't need Greek food. He's like, just try it. And so the people would try the Greek food, and they'd be like, you know what? Greek food really isn't that bad. And he's like, see? I told you. Have you, ever, have you ever read our philosophers? And they're like, we have our own philosophers, our own education. He said, just try it. And so they would try out the Greek philosophy. They'd read through it, and they'd say, you know what? Greek philosophy is pretty good. And he's like, let me tell you, if you haven't seen a Greek play... You really need to check it out. They're really good. And he said, we have our own entertainment. He said, just try it. And they would watch the Greek play and they would say, wow, Greek entertainment is really good. And then one day they would wake up and they would all say, crap, we're Greek. Because it would slowly, slowly, slowly build until all of a sudden they had been converted. It was a genius way to convert people. And Alexander the Great knew that. Slowly, slowly to introduce things that were Greek into the culture. And he met little resistance. Nobody stood up and put their foot down and said, No, I will not do that. Alexander the Great's successors, who followed his way of conquering people, they came to Jerusalem. And they tried to enforce the same tactic that Alexander the Great did on the Jewish people. And most of the Jewish people fell for it. But there were a few that didn't. And you can read about them in the book of Maccabees. There was one man, his name was Eliezer. And he said, I will not, I will not follow the Greek traditions. And they said, come on, Eliezer, we're only asking that you eat Greek food. And one of those pieces of Greek food was bacon. We love bacon. I ate bacon yesterday. It was fabulous. And they said to him, they said, just eat bacon. And he said, I will not eat bacon. And they said, and they were really impressed because Eliezer was standing up to them and he had such great courage and fortitude. And they said, okay, Eliezer, here's the deal. Just go out in front of the people, take a piece of chicken, or whatever it was, I don't know, it could have been hamburger. And he said, just simply chew on it and say to everybody, mmm, bacon. 
And Eliezer said, now why would I do that? And bring down such scandal on my gray head and give such a poor example to the young people. And they put him to death just because he wouldn't eat bacon. Notice how this, oh, just come on, try it. Oh, what's the big deal? Hey, just, just try this, try that. All of a sudden when somebody stands up and they say, no, then it's not such just a gentle little way of converting the culture. Then it becomes a totalitarian regime. You want to be Jewish? Then you will die. My friends, this should sound familiar to us. Marriage seems like it was redefined overnight while we stood by and watched. In the 1960s, some things came about. There was this thing called the pill. I said, just try it. What's the big deal? It's just a little thing. It's going to make life easier. You don't have to worry about having babies, but you can still have the pleasure that you've always wanted. And people tried it, and they said, you know what? The pill isn't that bad. But yet it didn't always work. And so they said, well, sometimes you have an unexpected pregnancy, and it would be better for that kid not to live because he would, live, he would be born in such terrible circumstances. He would have such a terrible way of life. And so he said, here's abortion. Just try it. We have too many people in the world anyway. The world can't sustain itself. And few people stood up against it. And then it became law. Then there came the Internet, the introduction of pornography into mainstream life. What's the big deal? Everybody's doing it. Then euthanasia. Let's be honest. It would be better that these people were dead instead of living in such a terrible, poor quality of life. And then the pro-gay movement. They should be able to love. What's the big deal? You need to have an open mind. And we just laid down and let it happen. I often hear Catholics say, how did it happen, Father? How did we get to this state of affairs? We let it! We let it happen. 60 million Catholics in America takes 40 million to elect a president. What's the problem? What's the problem? Eliezer was a great gift to the world. But what gave him that kind of strength? What gave him the kind of strength that he would lay down his life just to not eat a piece of pork? It's what we call virtue, sacrifice. The desire to prefer death rather than to give up one's belief. He would rather die than leave his God. Nothing was more important to him. Can we say that? that we would rather die than give up our beliefs. I once heard someone say this, we lose ourselves when we compromise the very ideals we fight to defend, and we honor those ideals by upholding them, not when it is easy, but when it is most difficult. You know who said that? President Barack Obama. 
So the question is, tonight and for the rest of your life, what are you going to do? Will you give in to the culture slowly, each day? Or will you desire to live the life of a saint? Because in Latin, the word saint is sanctus. In Greek, it's agios. It means to be holy, to be set apart. It's to be different. When people see you, do they know that you're different? You know, for us priests, it's not really fair because we wear black. People just know we're different. In fact, you know, I travel a lot and uh, I sit oftentimes in little food courts and I have the strangest encounters. Sometimes people are so happy to see me and sometimes people just scream at me. It's unbelievable what just this uniform of black and white does to people. But do they know that you are different? Do people say, man, Joe, he's different. He's not like everyone else. Maybe a better way to put it, the way the Bible puts it, is who will you serve? Will you serve God or mammon? Do you know what mammon is? It's your turn. You can just raise your hand if you want. I'll call on you. It's just kind of like school. I taught high school and college, so anytime. Mammon. This could be a long night. I feel like everybody's turning and looking at the sisters. That's not really fair. What's mammon? Raise your hand. You're not playing by the rules. Money? Close? Come on. I'm, 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 there you go. What's that? Greed? Close. Give me one more. Way in the back. Guys, shout it out. Bread? Is that what you say? Nope. <laughs> M-A-M-M-O-N. Mammon. That didn't help, huh? Mammon is worldly ideologies, worldly things, worldly allurements. Will you serve the world and your ego, or will you serve God? That's the question. But I think this, so we have, to, we have to ask the question, because I would suggest that the devil is working the same way that Alexander the Great did. He's just slowly, slowly introducing his mammon into the world. So what is it? Some people would say, you know, there's a lot of answers, as we've heard, greed, power, pleasure, those kinds of things. But mammon, I think, is most properly described in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17. Listen to this. The prophet says, Cursed be the man that places his trust in human beings, who seeks his strength in himself, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And then the prophet says, conversely, Blessed or happy is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord alone. I think Jeremiah is saying that the devil's mammon is that is slowly getting put into the culture more and more every day is to get us to focus on ourselves. You guys, I don't think that the devil cares about our sin. I just think he cares about the effects of our sin. That we look to ourselves. That we take control. That we provide for ourselves and that we don't trust him. 
The reason I say that is because it's the original sin. You ever wonder why they call it the original sin? It's the only sin that was ever original. Everything else is a copy. What did the devil try to put into Adam and Eve's heart? Don't trust him. He's hiding something from you. He's lying. The main focus of the devil is to get us to focus on ourselves. Because when we focus on ourselves, it's very easy to despair. When I was uh, first year as vocation director, I want to preface this story by the fact that I know I am a very arrogant man. Okay, I know that. So afterwards, you're going to say, wow, this guy is a really arrogant guy. Okay, you, you think I'm arrogant now, you should have seen me before I converted, okay? So Jesus has done a lot of good things. But my first year as vocation director, I called it the year of trophies because so many great things happened to me. And now you can sit back and say these are kind of stupid. And again, I don't know. You know, I'm from North Dakota, so the culture out here is different. But we love hunting in North Dakota. I don't know if you're hunters out here. We love fishing in North Dakota. I'm sure you're fishermen because you got the ocean. So this year... Okay, a lot of crazy things happened to me. Number one, my first year as vocation director, 14 guys entered the seminary. 14. Our average for our diocese, which is only 60,000 Catholics, is two to three every year. And in one year, we had 14. That same year, I published, you know, Lighthouse Catholic Media? I published the Lighthouse Catholic Media CD on my vocation story. That same year, I shot a trophy deer. It was huge. That same year, I caught a trophy bass. It was huge. Everything was just beautiful. And I went into retreat, and my retreat master, I started telling her all these things. I'm like, it was amazing, this, this, this. And she's like, wow, you're really amazing. I'm like, I know. She said, you know what, you need to pray with how God sees you and with how you see you. And I thought, great, this is a great way to start retreat. So I went in, started praying about how I see me. It was the best holy hour of the year. It was amazing. I'm like, man, this is great. God is so good to me and I'm so good. And then I went into my hour and I prayed with how Jesus sees me. And it was dark. It was nothing. It was dry. Which is very disconcerting for the human being. Jesus, how do you see me? Darkness. (laughs) You know, it was terrible. And at the end of it, I'm like, well, whatever. You know, I went back to my room. I sat down. And all of a sudden, I heard something very clear in my heart. It was, go shoot hoops. There was a little gymnasium where we were with some basketball hoops, go shoot hoops. And I'm like, I'm not gonna go shoot hoops. It's nine o'clock at night, that's ridiculous. So I grabbed a book. Whenever God tries to talk to me, I try to distract myself. (laughs) So I was reading my book. And I heard again, go shoot hoops. So I don't want to, I'm tired. I'm getting ready for bed. Third time, God always speaks to me in threes. I think it's usually the Holy Spirit, then it's Jesus, and then it's the Father. And the father said, go now. And the fear of God came into my heart. 
and I put on, this is the best part, I only had my black dress shoes, black dress socks, a dirty white t-shirt, and a pair of like shorts that were too small. So now I look like an idiot, and I'm walking over to the gym, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm really doing this. Surely the gym will be locked, or there's going to be people playing. I just don't, just, I open the door, nobody's in the gym except for one guy. It was one guy. And man, I thought I looked stupid. This guy, holy cow. He was in dress shoes, dress pants, tucked in shirt, bow tie, glasses, parted hair. I mean, but I have never seen a man train so hard and was so terrible at basketball. He was terrible. In the 20 minutes that I was there, he never made a shot. Ever, not one. He would dribble as fast as he could. The ball would go flying away from him. One time he tripped over himself and fell over. A normal person does a layup nice and gently. He'd just throw it off the backboard. But there was something inside of me that like loved this man. Because he was so inept. But he was trying so hard. And I said to myself, Jesus, I don't know why you brought me here but this is great. And on a dime, the Lord Jesus said to me, well, that's you. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Time out. Apparently, you didn't see my, my year, all the amazing things that happened. He's like, no, that's you. As inept as that man is at basketball, you're that inept at the priesthood. But he said this, but I love that you try so hard. I love that about you. But when you try so hard, you get too focused on yourself. And when the Lord gets me in line, like brings me online, we're one-on-one, -on -one, then he can start talking to me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I suppose. And he's like, yeah, let's just go through this little litany of trophies. I'm like, okay. He's like, those seminarians, all 14 of them, how hard did you work for them? I'm like, they just kind of called me. <laughs> He's like, good, yeah, that was my work. And he said, and, and about that trophy deer, do you even know how to hunt? I'm like, no. <laughs> my buddy and I hunt in a minivan. I don't know if you know anything about hunting, but you're supposed to hunt in a pickup truck. We hunt in a minivan. The fish... I was, you know, sitting, talking, I had my pole stuck in the boat, and it just started going crazy. It was all him. And somehow I got it all on me. And that's the danger. The danger is self-focus. Don't ever, ever, ever forget that. It happened in the beginning with Adam and Eve. It happens with us every day in, day out. God is saying if you want to be safe, if you want to be loved, if you want joy, then forget about yourself. He said it in the reading for tonight. Forget about yourself. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. If you want to save your life, lose it. Give up control and look to me and I'll provide for you. Because you guys, I'm convinced at the end of our life, Jesus Christ will give us what we want most. He came so that we would want Him most. 
He showed us the way so that we would want him most. But at the end of our life, because all of life is based on choice, he will give us what we desire most. I am convinced that the Lord Jesus stands at the person's death and he says, come to me. And if we know him, if we've lived for him, we will run to him. But if we've been saying our whole life, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me. When he stands and says, come to me, we will say, it's about me. We won't want to be with him. C.S. Lewis says that people in hell actually want to be there. Which is incredible to think about. I learned to live free when I was in seminary. There were two things that happened to me. One right before I got into seminary and while I was in seminary. And the first one was when I, I went to Mexico. You'll hear a few stories about Mexico. It was a crazy time in my life. I call it the BC life before conversion. And when I was down in Mexico, again, I was a very arrogant man and I was waiting to go to a disco. We were going to go out dancing. And uh, as I was waiting there, nobody had showed up. And this little girl showed up, and she was wearing tattered rags, dirty. And she had this little cardboard, this little piece of cardboard with friendship bracelets on it. And the friendship bracelets were so terribly made that I could have made them better. But she came up, and she's like, do you want to buy a friendship bracelet? And this was all in Spanish. And I'm like, no, get away from me. And I pushed her away. Like I said, I know I was an arrogant man. And she went away. And all of a sudden, I'm still waiting. All of a sudden, this little car piece of cardboard like, comes right in front of my face. And she's like, please. And I'm like, no, get away from me. I'm sitting there waiting, waiting. And all of a sudden, I'm looking off because I heard some stuff over there. I feel somebody sit down next to me. She lays across my lap with her little cardboard thing and says, so I said, fine, what do you want? She said, it's a peso for a friendship bracelet. I'm like, here's a peso, get away. He's like, no, you have to buy a friendship bracelet. I'm like, I don't want a friendship bracelet. And she's like, well, then we have to play a game. And I'm like, I'm not playing a game. And so I'm sitting here, grown man, arguing with like a five-year-old. And she's like, no, 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 let's play the game. We flip the coin, we flip the coin. And I'm like, oh, okay, we're going to flip the coin. <laughs> it was like heads or tails, right? So I flip it, catch it, and she's like, heads. And I'm like, tails, you lose, okay? We're done now. And she's like, no, otra vez, otra vez. <laughs> so I start playing this game with this little girl. And I bet I spent $5. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I didn't even see him, the little boy comes up. And he's like, I want to play too. So we start flipping coins. And I have never met a worse heads or tails player in my life than this little boy. He could not win. He couldn't win. And I said, finally, I'm like, buddy, I'm down to my last peso. You've got to win this. He's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, you ready? He's like, yeah. I'm like, here we go. And I took it and I just threw it as high as I could, you know? And this little kid's like, <gasps> and I'm like, call it. And he's like, heads. And it hits and it's heads. And he picks it up and he runs a, like a victory lap around the piazza, screaming at the top of his lungs. And I'm like, you know, his sister's like holding $10 worth of pesos. <laughs> And they got back, and I'm like, you guys, let's get ice cream. And they're like, yeah, 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 let's go get ice cream. And they were like, wait a second. And they took all the money, 
And in the corner was their mom. I didn't see her. Just in tattered clothes. And they took all the money and they gave it to their mom. And they came running back to me. And in that moment, you guys, something happened to me. I realized they didn't want my money. They wanted me. We are meant for relationship. We're meant for communion. You want to punish a human being? What's the worst punishment you can give? Solitary confinement. Cut him off from relationship. And so what the devil wants to do is cut off relationship with Jesus Christ in your life. And he will do it in a thousand different ways. When's the last time you were at confession? I don't know. Well, I just can't get there. Really? Or do you think the enemy is trying to stop you from getting there? There's a thousand reasons we can come up with. But the truth is, is that the enemy does not want us in relationship. The second way that I learned this beautiful lesson of abandonment to God and the understanding of what brings truth and love and joy into my life is when I went to Medjugorje. I took a trip there, and as I was going, before I left, one of my buddies, he said to me, he said, hey, if you're going to go, you got to go on God's providence. I'm like, well, yeah, I go everywhere on God's providence. And he's like, no, 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 like really go on God's providence. I'm like, what does that mean? He said, buy a ticket, take your passport, and that's it. And I'm like, well, that's stupid. And he's like, yeah, but... That's living on God's providence. And I said, fine, let's do it then. So, and you know, it was just me. It wasn't let's like him and I, it was just me. And so as I went, I went, I picked my ticket up, got on the boat, took the ferry across, got off the boat and I was sitting there and I'm like, hey, okay, I'm not in Medjugorje. I thought the boat was just gonna drop me off there. Apparently there's a bus and I didn't know that so I went up to the counter and I'm like hey I need a ticket to get to Medjugorje and they're like well it's ten dollars I'm like I don't have any money and they're like why don't you have any money and I'm like well I'm living on God's providence and they're like well that's stupid and I'm like okay well can I get a ticket she's like not unless you have ten dollars so I'm like well this stinks so I went out where the bus was and I walked up onto the bus and I said did this bus go to Medjugorje he's like yep I'm like can I go and he's like do you have a ticket I'm like nope he's like well you can't go then I'm like, oh. I was like, come on. And he's like, well, what the heck? We got a little extra room. Jump on. And I was like, no way. I got to Medjugorje. I let, I, I'm sitting there. I'm like, hey, okay, I'm here. Now what? <laughs> I got five days before I return. I got no place to stay. I got no money. And I got no food. And so I went up to this little place that my buddy told me to go and I, it's called Chinacolo. It's where they like rehabilitate drug dealers. Yeah, why not go there? That's, <laughs> that's the best place to go. And so as I get there, I walk inside. I'm like, hey, can I stay here? And they're like, no. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I thought that was going to work. And as I'm sitting there, around the corner comes two priests I know from the United States. I'm like, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, hey, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm on pilgrimage. Like, so are we. I'm like, great. Do you guys have any room? They're like, yeah, we got an extra bed. You want to stay with us? Done. I said, I don't have any money. And they're like, well, that's stupid. Why didn't you bring any money? 
I'm like, I'm living on God's providence. I ate like all the leftovers from supper, but I had a place to stay. And I got there and I got home and I didn't spend one dime. And I realized you guys in that moment of my life, I was the freest maybe I've ever been. No attachment. Living on God's providence. I learned to live freely. I found that pearl of great price. The question is, where do you place your trust? Is it in yourself? Is it that I have to take control? Or do you place it in God? And I think the vast majority of people, if I said, where do you place your trust? You'd say, well, I place it in God. You know, I just read an article that said 95% of Americans believe in God. And that's encouraging. Because you'd think from the media that everybody's atheist. 95% of people believe in God. But my question is this. If you check the yes box on I believe in God, my question would then be, how does it affect you? How does your belief in God affect you? Does it radically change everything? Or is it something that's just sort of there? Does it pervade your whole life? Or is it just something on the side? Are you really all in? Or are you just saying, I'm all in? Is it a Sunday thing? Or is it an everyday thing? Are you a Christian? Or are you pretending to be a Christian? When I was in college, I had the opportunity to go to a Dave Matthews Band concert. You guys might not know the Dave Matthews Band, but great band. And we went to three shows, back to back to back. Awesome. During the day, there was nothing to do. So one day, we just started driving. And as we were driving, we saw these huge cliffs, because there was this massive river that flowed through, which carved out this amphitheater called the Gorge. Well, there are these huge cliffs that you could jump into the river. We're like, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea to jump off the cliff into the river and we're like yeah this is these BC decisions you know before conversion everything seems right and so we decided to jump on these cliffs they were like 30 foot cliffs and we were having a ball it was so much fun and then as I was sitting there I looked over and I saw a 90 foot cliff and I said to my buddies I said if the 30 foot cliff is fun think about the 90 foot cliff and they're like yeah good idea so we walked over there, and you guys, looking at a 90-foot cliff from about, I don't know, three, 400 yards away, versus when you're standing on the edge of the cliff looking down, that's a long ways. 90 feet down is a long ways. And we didn't have any way of checking the depth. We just looked, and we're like, wow, it looks blue. You know, if it's blue, it's got to be deep enough. And so we stood there. And I remember standing there, and my buddy's like, well, are you going to jump? And I'm like, well, it was your idea to come over here. You should probably jump. He's like, yeah, well, you know, I'm the one that thought of it. So the guy that didn't even want to come should be the one that should have to jump. And we just sat there and talked and talked and talked. At one point, I was like, you know what? We're never going to jump. And so I just backed up and took off running and just launched. And I was just like, yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm like, no. You know, like, because you're, I mean, when you get to about 30 feet, which is what we were jumping at before, you're not even halfway down yet. And you're picking up speed, and it's getting scary. And when I hit the water, I hit like this. 
I had black and blue marks all the way down my arms. This girl that was jumping with us, she jumped, and she was looking down at the water, and when she hit, knocked her out. I mean, this is a, it was a dangerous jump. But I mean, I, I hit, I fell into the water, and I, I don't know if you ever watch on, I love National Geographic, but they, penguins, fascinated with penguins. I think they're amazing bird things. They're not really birds, because they don't fly. But anyway, they, what penguins do is they push and push and push towards the edge until a penguin falls off into the water. And then if that penguin comes up alive, then they all jump in. So that was kind of me. I was the penguin. They got pushed in, but I came up and I was like, it's awesome. And like, it was just, boom, 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 boom. everybody started jumping, except for one guy. One guy couldn't jump. And we made fun of him, blah, blah, blah. Well, later on that night, we were sitting around the fire. And we had met people from all over the United States. And they're like, what are you guys doing for fun during the day? We're like, we're jumping off cliffs. Man, today we did this 30-foot cliff. And then we went and we did this 90-foot cliff. And the guy that didn't jump was like, it was awesome. And I turned, I'm like, you didn't even jump. And he's like, yeah, but the cliff. <laughs> he was a total poser. Pretending like he was doing the crazy thing when he wasn't doing the crazy thing. He wasn't all in. The people that actually live their faith are the ones that actually jump off a cliff. And when they do it, it's awesome. And people follow. But way too many of us are standing on the edge of the cliff saying that we jumped. We're living more in the world. And that's why we're not converting hearts. So we're all standing on the cliff. Here are some examples, I hope, because I like when I give my talks, I like to make them practical. I hope these help you to see if you're really all in, if you're really placing your trust in God. And they're based on the Beatitudes. The first, what's the first Beatitude? I promise I won't do this too many times, but it's your turn again. What's the first Beatitude? What? You got to raise your hand. You're not playing by the, the rules. There you go. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Very good. Translation, I would simply say this. Because sometimes in the Beatitudes, we're like, maybe this is just me. By the way, I do this thing called projecting. So like, whatever I'm going through, I just assume you're going through. So that not, might not be true. But when I read the Beatitudes, sometimes I'm like, what's he talking about? I don't know if you ever get that. Blessed are those who weep. Happy are those who are weeping. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are poor. They're just bizarre. So the translation would be this. Blessed are you, happy are you, if you don't place your faith in material things. What are some signs that you're doing that? How much time do you spend thinking about things you want to get? How painful is it for you to lose money? Do you find that you're never satisfied with what you have? Do you find yourself often comparing possessions to others? And how much do you work? If you answer yes or any of these questions and maybe you're placing more faith in money, wealth and material things than you think practical advice start giving more away you know when I talk to people you know often people are like oh the church is just asking for money, for money, for money I just often say to people she's asking for 10% how much do you give 
And the reason I asked that of people, because my first year of priesthood, I said, I'm giving 10%. Because if I don't give 10%, I can't get up at the pulpit and tell people to give 10%. So my first year, I did all my taxes, everything. Surely, I gave away 10%. You know how much I gave away? 6%. So I set up a whole other checking account. Every time I get paid, 10% of my check goes into that checking account. And that's how I know I'm giving 10%. And remember, even if you're giving 10%, 10% is the minimum. drives me nuts in, in high school. I taught high school for six years. I get so sick of my students. They would be like, Father, if I do this, is it a sin? Like, I just, one day I want a kid to be like, Father, I, I helped this old lady and like, I carried four bags. Is that a virtue? Or, nobody ever asks that. Everybody's always asking how much they can get away with and still get into heaven. I hear this sometimes when I go over for dinner parties. People are like, yeah, Father, you know, I'm just shooting for purgatory. I'm like, I always say to people, I'm like, with that mentality, sir, you're going to hell. Where else do you hear that? I mean, in like sports, like a fishing tournament. What are you hoping to catch today? Oh, I don't know, maybe a pound fish. I just want to get in the running. You know, at the Super Bowl, what's your plan today? Are you going to win? Well, you know, I just don't want to fumble. No, man, we shoot for the greatest things everywhere in the world, except when our faith, we are minimalists. So start giving more away. Second thing, stop working so much and spend it with your families. There was a man in my parish, his name was Jerry Schmidt. He died at 54 from pancreatic cancer. He was a huge, I mean, this guy was a massive man. He was a rancher. This is North Dakota, man. He's North Dakota to the T. He came, as he entered the church, he had a plaid shirt with cut-off sleeves, and he'd hang his cowboy hat at the door. Faithful, faithful Catholic. At the end of his life, I didn't know it was the last week of his life, but I went and visited him, gave him the anointing. And I said to him, I said, Jerry, what have you learned? And on a dime, he looked at me and he said, Father, two things. Number one, I don't control anything in this life. Not a thing. And number two, I would have worked half as much as I did. And I would have spent that extra time on my family. Because that's what matters. Jerry got it. He got it. It cost him his life, but he got it. This life is not about you. It's about him. And it's all about relationship. Second, blessed are those who are hungry and blessed are those who are weeping. Translation, blessed are you if you don't root your life in sensual pleasure. What are some signs? How much of your money is given over to pleasure, to nice things, to great trips, to amazing vacations? How do you react when life becomes painful? Do you shrink away from doing things you know you should do because it won't feel good? Do you fast or practice any type of discipline? Depending on how you answer those questions, maybe you're placing more faith and trust in sensual pleasure than you thought. And this one is especially dangerous in our day and age because we have this mantra, if it feels good, it is good. And I can tell you right now, that statement is not true. 
When I was down in Mexico, I went to a little place called Puerto Angel. It's right next to Puerto Escondido. Puerto Escondido is one of the top 10 surf beaches in the world. When we were there, this little town had no electricity. And one night when we were walking home, we got done surfing, we were walking back, and it said up top, it said lobsters, two for one. And I love lobster. And I looked at my buddy Joe, I'm like, dude, two for one, we gotta go. And the Mexicans who were with us, they said, don't eat there. And we're like, why not? It's two for one. I mean, it was like the equivalent of five dollars. And they're like, just don't eat there. And we're like, come on, man, give me some reason. He's like, you want some reason? What do you need to keep lobster fresh? I was like, ice. And he's like, what do you need to make ice? I'm like, a freezer. He's like, what's the one thing that Puerto Angel doesn't have? And I'm like, electricity. I'm like, that's, no, man, they're sitting in a bucket back there. They're going to pick them up, throw them in. It's going to be great. And they're like, do whatever you want. And so we functioned on the principle, if it feels good, it is good. And we went in and we ate lobster, two of them. I had butter all over my face. And it was amazing. Now I looked a lot better back then. I had a little longer hair. I was drinking my Corona, Pacific wind blowing through my hair. And I walked home. See, Father Jay's wrong. I'm better looking than he is. And as I walked home, we got back and the Mexicans came back and they were like, so I was lost. We're like, great. <laughs> you guys totally missed. We're like, well, I guess we were wrong. Went to bed because it was dark. There's no electricity. I woke up at about two or three in the morning and my sheets were soaking wet. I must have been running 105, 104 degree fever. And I stood up on the edge of the bed, I sat up, and in a second, everything in my internal organs locked to where I couldn't breathe. I thought I was dying. And then it let go, and then I realized I had about 10 seconds before my whole body exploded. And I ran to the bathroom as fast as I could. And I had an explosion. Several of them. And as I was done, I actually didn't know that much stuff was inside the human person, but as I was done, I was sitting there, and the door flew open, and Joe looked at me, and literally lowered his shoulder and ejected me off the toilet. We ended up in the, in the morning, we were both laying on the ground. And we had five Mexican guys standing over us, smiling, saying, how is that lobster? Just because it feels good, doesn't mean it is good. And in fact, most of the things in this life that are worth anything are hard. They're difficult. This is why Jesus says, pick up your cross daily. Because he knows the greatness demands sacrifice. But because we live in this, this culture of comfort, of ease, we have no great desire. We have no great desire. Some practical advice about blessed are you if you don't root your life in sensual pleasure. Two things. Fasting. We have got to fast. And I hate it as much as you do. But we got to do it. And I said this one, this one kind of popped into my head praying. Instead of going on vacation, take a mission trip. 
I know that sounds crazy. But when we'd take our high school kids, we would always go down to Guatemala or Peru. We'd take them on a mission trip. And then the last two days, we would spend seeing the country. And you know what? The kids didn't like it. Why? Because they had seen the poverty. They had seen the pain. And yet they had seen the joy in those people. And that's what they wanted. They didn't want the stuff. But when you live in a culture, it's just handouts. It's so easy to get confused. Finally, we hear, blessed are, they, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude and exalt you because of your faith in the Son of God. A translation, blessed are you if you don't put your faith in the approval of others. What are some signs? How concerned are you with what people think of you? How much does it bother you when you're not noticed for something you did? How much does it bother you when someone else gets attention for something that you did? Practical advice, do things that you will never be noticed for. And maybe the biggest one, stand up for your faith at work and amongst your friends. That's a cross in itself. If we, we have to do these things. Jesus told us to pick up our cross and follow him. And I noticed in my own life, when I choose what's harder, I always feel better. And I become a better man. In fact, that might be a principle all of you can take away. They say at every talk, 6% you will take away from the talk. Here's the 6%. If you have two choices, always do what's harder. That's the way of the cross. If you have two choices, always do the harder one. When I was on a plane, this is my last story. I fly a lot. And... uh, I was on a plane on my way to Rome, and there were two priests that were in the little gate area, and this one was kind of a heavier set monk. He was jolly. I liked talking to him. We had a good time. And I turned over, and this other guy was very clean cut, perfect suit, just, you know, just a strong looking GQ sort of man. And I turned over, and I'm like, Father, and what's your name? And he's like, my name's Archbishop Coakley. I'm the Archbishop of Oklahoma City. I'm like, well... Your Excellency, good to see. I I totally missed the chain. I don't know his ring, all that stuff. And we got to talk a little bit. Excellent. He's a fabulous man. He's dealt with some really hard stuff in his diocese and done it with strength. As we got on the plane, I was really impressed with him. Not only was he not in first class, he was in coach and he had the middle seat. Any of you have flown on a transatlantic flight? The equivalent to hell is the middle seat on that plane. And he's a tall man. He's he's over six foot, so he was jammed in between two big guys. And I walked past, and I'm platinum medallion on Delta. And I was like, I get to pick my seat. I I took an aisle exit row. I had tons of leg room. I was stretching out, getting all my stuff out, putting it around. And all of a sudden, I heard in my heart, give the archbishop your seat. And I was like, no. Jesus, you wouldn't want that. (laughs) This is nine hours. This is not, you know, a two-hour flight. So I, you know, kept doing stuff. Give up your seat to the archbishop. Well, he probably wouldn't even want it. He probably wants to suffer. Like that, he's an archbishop. He wouldn't want me to deprive him of his suffering. 
So, no, no, I'll just, I'll be. So I kick back and I'm getting ready to kind of fall asleep. And again, the father, give him your seat. So I got up and I walked up and I said, your excellency, I just saw you're kind of crunched. I didn't, I, I have a seat back here, exit row, tons of leg room. Do you, do you want to switch? And he looks at me and he said, that'd be great. And I'm like, dang it. I thought for sure he was going to say no. And so I begrudgingly grabbed all my stuff and threw it on that seat and sat there just mad. I'm like, I love Jesus. The reason I'm telling you this is because it's not easy to, it's not easy to live the way of the cross. It's not. It's hard. And as I sit there, we were supposed to land in Rome, and I think we landed in Naples and taxied for two hours to Rome. Because, you know, you're at that, like, just get on the plane, you know? And I finally got off, and I never got to see the archbishop, because we landed late, and I had to get to where I was getting picked up. And so I never knew what happened to him. But as I was riding in that car, I just felt the love of the Father. Just to say, I'm proud of you. Because that's making you into a better man. I'm proud of you. Jesus is constantly telling us to struggle, to fight, to discipline our bodies and practice mortification, to walk the narrow road. At the center of our faith, at the center of every Catholic church, stands a massive cross. So that we're reminded every day when we walk through those doors that that's the way to life. The way to life is through death. To love the cross is to love Christ. And we got to do it every day. To close, I once read this quote from Thomas Akempis, the great spiritual writer who wrote The Imitation of Christ. He said, Jesus has always had many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire consolation, but few who care for trial. He finds many to share his table, but few who will partake of his fasting. All desire to be happy with him. Few wish to suffer anything for him. Many follow him to the breaking of the bread, but few to the drinking of the chalice of his passion. Many revere his miracles. Few approach the shame of his cross. Many love him as long as they encounter no hardship. Many praise and bless him as long as they receive some comfort from him. But if Jesus hides himself and leaves them for a while, they either fall into complaints or into desolation. Those, on the contrary, who love him for his sake and not for any comfort of their own, bless him in all trial and anguish of heart, as well as in the bliss of consolation. Even if he should never give them consolation, they would continue to praise him and wish always to give him thanks. What power there is in pure love for Jesus. Love that is free from all self-interest, from all self-love. Everything great in this life is a matter of choice. 
And it's all about choosing what is more difficult and doing it all the time, every day. Because if we don't, we will leave him. To love the cross will always bring joy, but to not love the cross will eventually bring pain. It's the great contradiction of the world. And it's the only way to life. As the devil uses Alexander the Great's technique to influence so many hearts, may we use the cross to win them back. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time. And we're grateful for the gift of the cross. We ask that day in and day out we may choose it. That we might seek to lose our life so that you may gain it. We beg for the grace to be free of self-control and to live for others. We desire the cross, Father. Give us the grace to accept it. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.